There is an epidemic of missing and murdered Native American women in our country. It's an issue that doesn't get nearly enough attention or resources. Today we're going to hear from two women who have dedicated their lives to helping Indigenous women overcome obstacles and hardships. With this episode of The Hot Dish, I hope we can help more people become more aware about this hidden crisis in our country and help encourage action to stop it. We'll also talk about what is needed to fix what's broken with our tribal justice system so that victims are able to get the justice they deserve. One idea I've put forward is called Savannah's Act, which aims to help tackle these challenges and improve cooperation among law enforcement agencies at all levels. First up, we have Lisa Brunner with us. Lisa is the co-director of Indigenous Women's Human Rights Collective, Inc., and policy consultant to Sacred Spirit First Nations Coalition. In these roles, Lisa advocates for victims of domestic violence, sexual assault, assault, and sex trafficking. She's worked in the domestic violence and sexual assault field for over 17 years, advocating on the state, local, and national and international level to bring about policy changes. Lisa is also a founding member of the National Congress of American Indians Violence Against Women Task Force. Lisa, thank you so much for being part of this important conversation and for sharing your expertise with, um, with our listeners. I think this is not an issue that is well understood. It has been invisible, as have been a lot of issues that in, uh, involve um, crime victim uh, stories of um, what happens to Indigenous people. And so, first off, I'd like to lay out the reasons why we have a crisis um, uh, of missing and murdered Native women for our listeners who may not know much about Indigenous history or the realities that tribal communities face today. And I think it's a complicated and multifaceted issue, really involving historic trauma, law enforcement jurisdictional challenges, racism, increased risks of human trafficking and domestic violence, and the list goes on. How did we get to this point, and, and um, do you see any reason to be hopeful going forward that we can, in fact, change hearts and minds and get attention to this, Lisa? So to, to answer your question in regards to um, the level of um, the high rates of violence that Native American and Alaska Native women face in the United States, which is far greater than all other populations of women in the country, and including for some Native women on some reservations, um, face the you know, murder up to 10 times higher than a national average of the United States. And a lot of it is really stems from um, the historical context of colonization and the institutional racism that came from that, because there was a time and space where through U.S. Leg you know, federal laws and policies, um, they, they led the attack to um, pretty much commit genocide against Native American and Alaska Native people here in the United States. Um, you know, the forced removals to reservations, the, you know, the taking of lands, um, imposing laws that, that limit tribes and you know, Pueblos and Alaska Native villages from being able to protect their citizens from non-Natives. Um, so th that's just you know, a historical context in a, a very quick nutshell. And is, is, am I hopeful um, to the changes to be able to come? Absolutely. You know, we've been seeing 
you know, incredible amounts of changes through federal laws and policies with the Violence Against Women Act when it was reauthorized in 2005 to have um, um, tribal, we have our own tribal section, um, Section 902 called, you know, Safety for Indian Women. In it, it increased funds, you know, increased funds from 5% to 10% coming to two tribes and Alaska Native villages. It increased um, access to um, NCIC, the National Crime Information Center, which unfortunately a lot of tribes still don't have access to. So I, I applaud your efforts within Savannah's Act that outlines how to help tribal nations and Alaska Native villages to be able to have um, increased access to these databases that had become in federal law in 2005 with VAWA, reaffirmed in the Tribal Law and Order Act of 2010, and then reaffirmed again in VAWA of 2013, which also extended um, tribes' ability to try non-natives to come onto our territories and commit acts of domestic violence, state and violence, and violations of order for protections. Um, so I'm very hopeful that you know, through the, the, the scope of time, through the, the timeline of history, there has been a change from that colonial mind frame to working together to be good relations with each other from a government to government relations to really improve response for the, you know, through Indian, you know, Indian country and Alaska Native villages, but also to really secure homeland security. Um, to ensure safety for all citizens in, in the country. Well, and when you look at kind of the history, um, we've we've done tremendous work in building out victims' rights um, organizations. North Dakota just um, constitutionally passed something called Marcy's Act, which which gives um, crime victims even more power and control over what happens in in prosecutions. You know, overwhelmingly that that bill passed, but yet crime victims in Indian country tend to get forgotten or marginalized. And so I think it's it, I think it's important that we understand that all of the great work that's been done in victim assistance, you know, kind of nationally, hasn't always found its way into Indian country, and we need to fix that. So so I, I guess the, the question is, how do we begin? Um, you take a look at the Canadian effort, which is the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, um, and although there's been some controversy around how successful that's been, there are valuable lessons I think we can learn from the Canadian effort. Um, what do you think um, we, we can, in fact, take from that Canadian effort and build on the work that they started, but also raising awareness here? How, how, do, how do we learn from what happened in Canada and how do we move forward? And what do you expect will be the outcome of that work up in, up in, uh, to our neighbors to the north? Well, uh, what we could learn from that and what we could take from that is that I think here in, in the United States, um, we should also do a national inquiry. Because when, w how they're doing it, they're holding listening sessions or field hearings, you know, within different territories of Canada. And I think that that's, that, that's a very important start. Because um, I, I was looking at your one-pager um, outlining Savannah's Act, and and that in 2016 you had over five five thousand Native American, uh, you know, Indian women that were reported missing, and it's very complex. Like you said, you know, even though there's you know with the crime victims increasing funding for crime victims, um, that, that that's that's 
that's positive outside of Indian Country and Alaska Native Territories. Um, so it's important that we, when we have listening um, sessions or these field hearings, that we have to look at the complex jurisdictions. So I think it would be important to go into non-public law 280 jurisdictions, which there are 200 of the 566 or 67 federally recognized tribes, 200 and some are a non-public law 280, which is the federal jurisdiction. So like like the state of North Dakota, that's FBI, um, Bureau of Indian Affairs, um, federal prosecutors, and so forth. And then you have public law 280 states such as Minnesota, California, Nebraska. Um, that that's under state jurisdiction, um, and which is very complex and very different. Um, but I think it's also important that you take a visit to Oklahoma because it is checkerboard. Um, you know how their their land base is laid out, um, and it, it and that too is very complex in its own. And also to be able to go up into Alaska and to Alaska Native villages. And then also important to look into urban areas because 80% of Native people, you know, that um, throughout the United States, of all of our tribal nations, actually live off reservations. And so, look in in, in urban areas, um, it, you know, to have those to have um, listening sessions as well. Because what Canada is is being able to grasp from that is really the the, the complexities of what are the barriers to reporting, what are the barriers. In, in a response from law enforcement, um, you know, what is the level of institutional racism? Where is the breakdown um, when calls for calls for help happen? And for here, for instance, on in the United, you know, for our tribe and whiters, you know, some of the issues are is that if you call 911, the first question that may be asked is, are you tribal? Well, that shouldn't matter. Um, because if you're tribal, they'll say then you need to call tribal law enforcement and either hang up on you or they may transfer your call. Um, 911 should be, you know, meeting that immediate ad address, you know, responding right away because um, it's life and death. Otherwise, you know, a lot of people really don't call 911 unless they really need help. So that there's, there, there's, there's that aspect to it. So, well, and, and some of the things that in Canada, they're also looking they're investigating investigations by law enforcement. So they're, they're also bringing in commissioners to do forensic um, investigations in, in regards to law enforcement. So it's not to point out and say law enforcement's not doing their job. It's about looking at how can we improve their response? What kind of training needs do they need? Because when we look at, at the complexity here in the United States, which is, is, which is a bit different than up in Canada, because you have tribal jurisdiction, state jurisdiction, federal jurisdiction. And um, I don't think there is really um, a standard of practice um, across all law enforcement agencies. So how do we look at that? And when we can look at that, we can, we can begin to see where are the breakdowns and where do, we, where do those improvements need, need to happen. Um, across across the board for both you know Indian country and Alaska Native villages and in um, major urban urban cities you know, like a city like Fargo um, the other pieces is also knowing the complexities like up in Alaska Native villages you know they they have PSO public safety officers um, some of them you know they're they're trained through the Alaska State troopers um, but some aren't they're they're not armed. Um, they're just getting basic training that they need to be in the villages. So how do we really look at, 
you know, ensuring our, the safety of indigenous people as a whole because we're victims of violent crimes two and a half times higher than the entire population of the United States, and 88% of those perpetrators are non-natives. Um, so, again, it's, you know, when, if we could do a national inquiry and to be able to have listening sessions slash field hearings, I think we'll really get the, the true grasp of what, what are the undertones that sustains the level of violence against indigenous people, in particular our women and our girls, our children, and looking at the murdered and missing indigenous you know, women's issue. Because when you have tribes that are prevented through, through you know, federal laws and policies that are prevented to hold non-natives accountable I across the board, it kind of sets the tone that our, our lands are predatory, are predatory grounds. Um, and, and we're seen as less than the rest of the population throughout the, throughout, the, throughout the country in regards to our safety as Native people, in particular Native women. Um, so I, I think there's, there's a lot of positive things that can come from this. I, I think, you know, what, this isn't the only effort that we're undertaking. Um, I have long believed that we have an anemic response, federal response, in Indian country, and that has basically... Uh, allowed um, uh, tribal populations to become victimized, whether it's cartels that come in who want to sell drugs, um, whether it is people who want to perpetrate and to prey on Indian women and Indian children. We see it over and over again. And when there's no, as I say, cop on the beat in my state, then then why not? I mean, that's it's, it's open season. And so I've had a long conversation with Director Ray, uh, about this issue, he has assured me that he's taking it quite seriously, assigning some of his top people to take a look at how we can do a better job because, you know, if if people think they can act with impunity and there is no uh, law enforcement consequence, they will act with impunity. And, you know, to your point, you dial 911 and the first question you get is, are you Native? And that that's a logical question for someone to ask because jurisdiction is challenged, but we need to make this seamless. And I will say the governor, I've talked to the governor of North Dakota about this, and he's looking at doing more with memorandums of understanding, doing some cross-jurisdictional -jur work. But, you know, that that's not going to get us where we need to go. Another companion piece that I'm doing is um, the lack of amber alert in Indian country. And so if a young girl goes missing, it's virtually impossible for, um, uh, you know, it, well, it is impossible. There is no amber alert. Yeah. And so we want to make sure that, that the same kind of amber alert that would go out in the, in the community of Bismarck is the kind of amber alert that will go out regionally in Indian country in North Dakota and across the country. Yeah, ab absolutely, because currently I know that the um, DOJ is working with, I think I believe it was Navajo Nation, and different ones, you know, in regards to being able to have access to Amber Alert. But this should be, a, um, you know, a, a no-brainer that all tribal nations um, and Alaska Native villages should have access to Amber Alert. Because for here, in, I mean, I'm speaking to Manoma County, I'm speaking to, you know, mothers who have shared their stories with me, um, stating that they have called and asked, you know, that their daughter was missing and they got one or two responses. Is one, we have better things to do with our time. Or two, why don't you be a mother and know where the hell your daughter is? And that's not acceptable because, you know, when children go missing, you know, it, it is, it is, it is, it's, it's so important. It's, it's an actual critical moment in time that an Amber Alert is issued to be able to find these children. 
um, our children is no less important than any other children in the country, but yet we're, we're treated in, in that capacity that, that, that they're not. And that definitely needs to change because that mentality is what continues to sustain the level of, of you know, the institutional racism, but the, but the level of lack of response that happens within our territories. Well, I, I mean, I can tell you that recently I sat down with um, with just some women from Standing Rock who, within a matter of minutes, were able to come up with a list of 25 missing um, or murdered um, women from from uh, their tribe. And, you know, when you can just do that on the back of a of an envelope, there there is something that needs to be addressed here. And so I want to thank you so much, Lisa. We'll keep you posted on um, the progress of Savannah's Act, but um, it is so important that we raise awareness of this concern, that we all work together to solve this problem. Thank you, Senator Heitkamp, for inviting me to be on your, your talk show um, this morning and um, applaud your efforts for Savannah's Act and to really leading the country and raising the issue to the murdered and missing indigenous women and girls in the United States and in Alaska. Well, you're welcome. I thank you for your, your ongoing and continued leadership and all your hard work. This is a tough, tough area to work in, and I always applaud those advocates because every day you see things that um, the rest of society doesn't look at, and this is certainly uh, an area that um, has, has, uh, can diminish your soul over a long period of time. So thank you so much, Lisa, for the great work you do. All right. Thank you, Senator Heitkamp, and thank you for your work. You bet. Next, we'll talk with Sadie Youngbert. Uh, Sadie, who is a great friend of mine and also the director of Three Affiliated Tribes Victim Services located in Newtown. Um, that agency empowers individuals who have been abused, victimized, in emotional distress, and in need of resources or emotional support. She has been the long um, and a very hardworking director for seven years. She previously worked for eight years for uh, Fort Berthold Tribal Facility and the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, where she worked eight years in correction with reentry programs and uh, offender services. She studied criminal justice with minors in sociology and psychology. She lives on Fort Berthold Indian Reservation with her husband, two sons, two daughters, and her brother. Sadie, thank you so much for speaking with us today and for um, continuing to do the great work that you do. I think, um, you know, it's amazing to me, someone in Indian country knows personally someone who has, um, pretty much everyone in Indian country knows someone who's gone missing or has been murdered. And I've personally been given a list of names by tribal members in our state. And I was struck by the fact that when someone can just sit down with some friends on Standing Rock and come up with 25 names that they knew collectively that had either gone missing or were murdered. That is remarkable when you think about the percentage of the population um, and, and what, what a huge impact that has in the community. Um, and, and I think you see it probably every day, a lot of the challenges for women who are victimized and marginalized. And, and so I wanted to visit with you and, and ask you um, where you think um, uh, the changes have happened and what more we can do to bring awareness to this problem and to help organizations like yours continue to provide that very important service that you provide right at home on the reservation. Um, 
murder they're missing is like near and dear to my heart. My best friend went missing and then she was found deceased five days later. And the biggest thing personally going through it, what I found was that we're missing protocol. We're missing the step-by-step policy and procedures, how to deal with murdered and missing people, how to collaborate with other programs. You know, when I was right there in my own shoes, all professional, all my professionalism went right out the window. I was just a mess. I didn't know what to do. And so since then, it's been so close to my heart that I know exactly what other families go through. And it's it's something that's not talked about until it happens in your family. And now that it's becoming a national issue, I think we'll move in good places. I, I think when, when we look at it, people would be shocked. I mean, would you agree that pretty much everyone you know on, uh, on Mandan, Hadatsa, and Arikara Reservation probably knows someone very personally or has a close friend who has been either murdered, um, is missing, or exploited in some way? Yes, I can truly say in some way or form, somebody is connected to somebody that's been murdered and missing on our reservation. In the last year alone, or the last year and a half within our program, we have five women that we know of that have been murdered or missing and, and just in just, our small program. Just because this is going to go statewide and, and maybe some people nationally will be listening, just give people a, a sense of the population size of your reservation. Um, living on the reservation, tribal members, there's around 7,000 tribal members. Um, and then also we're inundated with all the oil boom people. But we still have a sense of community where some oil field people have joined our communities, but yet we're still like a closed-off community where, you know, we don't associate a lot with outside people. Yeah, I, I think I want people to understand that, um, think about a community the size of 5,000 people, and if five women had been murdered in a community that size, it would be national news. But somehow it's not national news when it happens to indigenous women. And, and that's the challenge that we have, which is raising the awareness and raising the jurisdictional challenges we have. As you said, the lack of protocol, because you know people are like, well, was this on or off the reservation? That shouldn't be a question. The question would be when somebody goes missing or is in fact abducted, um, that it's all hands on deck. Everyone who's there can help. And so I think that that's one of the challenges that we're trying to overcome. Exactly. And like um, with my friend that went missing, she was actually found about a half a mile north of the reservation boundary when the tribal PD didn't have contact with the county police department. And it wasn't an all-hands-on-deck thing when it shouldn't matter. We're all citizens of the United States. We're all citizens of North Dakota. It shouldn't matter if they were tribal members or who they are. If someone's missing, we all should stick together as one state to help each other and find this person. It's somebody's loved one. I don't care what color they are. And that's why my program is unique. We help everybody. We don't just help Native women. We help anybody that comes through our door, any family that's hurting. Well, I I can't say enough about the work that you're doing, and I just want to raise another issue, which is um, Fort Berthold became one of the first reservations in the nation to pass comprehensive anti-trafficking legislation. That was your hard 
earned reward for making sure that we raise that issue of trafficking. Um, we don't know. We just did a hearing in Indian Affairs. Um, uh, the General Accounting Office was asked to give an accounting of um, the percentage of victimization in trafficking that is Native American, and they literally can't give us those numbers. That's just not acceptable, especially when the federal government on your reservation plays such a critical role. And that's why we've been really pushing the FBI to elevate all of these issues, to take these cases out of the cold file and start looking at um, what they're going to do to clear some of these cases and bring people to justice. Uh, and so, um, you know, it doesn't have without advocates like you on the ground continuing to raise your voice, Sadie. You just have, you, you have made such a difference in Indian country, you know, all across the, the country because we tell your stories and, and we make sure that um, your voice is amplified through our office. But um, without you on the ground um, creating that, uh, that opportunity for people to feel like they can, in fact, um, uh, have a place to go, have, have, have people will understand and, and help them, I, I just don't see that we're, we're going to get this problem solved anytime soon. No, thank you for your good words. I feel like it's just a constant battle and a constant struggle, but if enough people get on board and we keep working together, hopefully we'll see some kind of justice for our victims so they know that their reservation is a safe place to live, that North Dakota is a safe place to live. I grew up in a small town off the reservation where my dad was a police officer, and I always felt safe there. But now going back, there's not the same people there. I don't even always feel safe there in that small town. So I think it's more than just even a reservation problem. It's a whole state problem where we all need to work together so everywhere can be safe for our women, for our children, for yeah, our families. I, I think when you when you think about making the reservation in all of North Dakota a safe place, right now, because of the jurisdictional challenges, I think a lot of criminals, including sef sex traffickers, find it a safe haven, you know, it's a, to be able to act with impunity. And, you know, we, we certainly um, saw the national stories as a result of the, the um, oil boom, but that's, that, that's a continuation. It's probably um, grown to be a much larger issue, but it's a continuation of things that I saw before the oil boom when I was attorney general working um, with domestic violence programs. And so it's just so important that we do everything that we can, Sadie, to, to make... Um, uh, to, to, the, the, other, the other piece of this um, is that when people don't think that there's any justice to be had, people um, will say, well, you got to let it go because nothing will ever happen. And so I think it leads to underreporting of these crimes as well. Exactly. There's a serious underreporting. You know, instead of our reservation being a safe haven for women and children, it seems like it's a safe haven for criminals. We've had so many gang members and organized crime and drugs, and um, now we have meth and heroin. We're looking into methadone clinics. We shouldn't have to be doing things like that, but criminals can come there. They think, oh, this is free land. They can't get me. There's tribal cops here. They don't understand the jurisdiction. The federal government's busy, so it takes a while for federal cases so that people aren't seeing convictions on the federal level right away so more and more people are coming they're getting our women and our children addicted to drugs which turns to trafficking which turns to them going missing it just all revolves together in a big circle and it's 
I want it back to be a safe haven for our families, not for criminals. Well, it, it uh, you know, when I had a chance to um, meet with uh, the Attorney General Jeff Sessions, um, he doesn't have a lot of experience in Indian country and probably not a lot of awareness of these jurisdictional challenges and, and certainly wanted, you know, gave him kind of a rundown on this is what happens in Indian country. And, you know, at the end of the day, in, in our state, you're primarily responsible. You are the cop on the beat. And it's the same uh, uh, discussion that I have with the director of the FBI. You're the cop on the beat. And, you know, I can't overpromise, but the FBI director, I just talked to him a couple weeks ago um, uh, right before a hearing and said, look, um, uh, what are you doing? And he basically said as a result of the conversations that he had with me, he's assigned someone to go around and start listening and trying to get to a, a spot where they can actually respond. And so, you know, Sadie, just just want you to know we're working as hard as what we can here to try and get additional resources to folks like you who have been fighting this problem on the ground that we won't give up um, until until we know that the right protocols are put in place. And what, uh, uh, another piece of this is the Amber Alert. You know, we just did the big meeting on Amber Alert, trying to make sure that it comes to Indian country, have a bill with Senator McCain, um, and we're hopeful that that bill can get through the Senate and get through the House, and we will um, take responsibility for working on an Amber Alert system so that when someone does go missing, we can, in fact, um, when someone does go missing, we can, in fact, uh, recover them earlier because those critical first hours are absolutely essential. And when we ignore it for two days, it just gets harder and harder to recover victims. Exactly. Um, you know, the best way right now, what we have, our best resource is Facebook. To share murdered or, or to share missing people is to share it on Facebook. You know, not everyone has Facebook. Having our own Amber Alert would be great or connected to the National Amber Alert system so it could go out so people could immediately start looking. Not, oh, I'm scrolling through Facebook. Oh, my gosh, some lady is missing. Oh, I might have seen her two days ago, you know, and that's how it seems it comes out. And that talking with our law enforcement, that's the calls that they're getting when they do see someone on Facebook. Well, I've seen her two days ago. Um, down the road, she was walking towards so-and-so place. You know, two days well, is a long time ago. Yeah, and the protocol, we can. social media can be a valuable tool, but it can't be the only tool. It's, yes. it's imperfect at best. And so, you know, Sadie, hang in there. Do continue to do your great work. Um, we'll be out to see you soon, and um, we'll keep you posted on what's happening with Savannah's Act. Oh, thank you so much, and thank you for taking the time and everything that you've done for programs like ours and pushing for the safety of Native women. We well, really, really appreciate it. I'm well, even going to cry. because you, you just, keep, Sadie, so cool. you just keep pushing me back. You keep reminding me that this is a forgotten group of people that um, we can never... We can never be satisfied until they get the same protections that anybody else in this country gets. And you're, you're such a voice for that. And thank you so much. I, I just love working with you because of your passion, but also your, your commitment to continuing to um, provide these services to some of the most vulnerable people in America. You're a great American. Thank you so much. Thank you, Senator. You bet. A big thank you to both Lisa and Sadie for joining me today. 
We must stop these crimes from going unnoticed and unpursued. And we must provide law enforcement with the tools to bring criminals to justice. Every day that I come to work in the United States Senate, I think about women and girls who were so needlessly and tragically lost. And I'll continue to fight to bring justice to their families and to keep our Native communities and every community strong and safe.